Okay, so this is our Simondo reading group uh, coming back after a break last week. Um, so we're picking up from page 131 of the translation, um, the subsection break there. Um, so last time we're, we're still looking at um, the sort of last stage of the image, the symbol image. Um, so we talked about, uh, let's see, what did we look at last time? Yeah, there's this notion of the image, uh, this sort of psychoanalytic notion of the image, the imago that uh, Simon Don borrows from Lacan, um, where this is a kind of image that has um, uh, a sort of duality inherent in it. Um, so he talks about the image of the mother um, as uh, sort of containing the, the good mother and the bad mother at the same time. Um, so um, there's like, and then, so this is connected with the uh, weaning complex. So the the mother as the source of nourishment and uh, uh, safety and and sort of um, everything good on the one hand, but then the mother also denies nourishment and denies all of those good things uh, in in weaning. Uh, so then there's this sort of bad side to the mother, and then as the child starts to become independent, um, the the mother, this good mother, starts to become a kind of um, enveloping and engulfing and sort of suffocating mother um so the what was previously this good side of the mother turns turns into like a a sort of um scary side of the mother at the same time um so um this type of image obviously it, it's much more um complex than like the um like uh, optical images that we talked about a, a few weeks ago um it's something that has a, a high emotional or affective uh, valence, so it it sort of um, has a charge that um, structures our emotional life around it. Um, and um, yeah, then we looked at um, yeah, he briefly talks about um, the this sort of binary versus ternary structure of images, um, where um, there would be a kind of um, um, these sort of binary images, like the good versus bad mother, that are sort of uh, like the, the image of the mother that contains the good and the bad mother um, sort of intertwined with each other is a, a binary image. Um, and it it has this sort of mythic potential to it. Like you, you find these um, oppositions in like folk stories or legends or, or myths um, where, um, yeah, you have these, these sort of opposed poles or you have like the, the stepmother as the bad mother and then the um, uh, birth mother as the good mother or something like that. Um, and then the more sort of complicated case is the ternary structure. So you have three terms that make up the the um, the structure of the image. Um, in, in these cases, um, Simondon argues that it allows for a more uh, a more communicable type of structure. It's something that is less sort of mythical and more sort of logical, I guess. Like you can you can express the relationship between these three terms. Uh, in a way that is more uh, easily communicated to others and others can, like, this third point, this third uh, element of the structure is something that serves as a point of reference that, um, you know, you and I or two different people can share. Um, and so he sees this as uh, this sort of development of the um, uh, third term or this this development of the third um, element in the symbolic structure as uh, a key moment in sort of transitioning from a, a more mythical or imaginary mode of thought to a, a more logical or communicative mode of thought. Um, and and there's some discussion in that part about, like, 
what is the relationship between the imaginary and the symbolic and um um he uh yeah he he talks about Sartre's um denial of the distinction between these two modes of thought or modes of representation i guess you could say um and uh he seems sympathetic to this idea though he doesn't sort of firmly commit himself i don't think to this idea that the imaginary and the symbolic would be the same um but he thinks there's a kind of continuity between imaginary and symbolic functions of the mind uh and um yeah so he he thinks that we we can't make a sort of um strict distinction between imaginary and symbolic functions and we have to see one as like the symbolic this ternary um structure uh arises out of the binary structure the the more imaginary side um um so yeah it's not it's not a sort of um uh, strict distinction between the one and the other uh, so i think that's more or less where we left off um two weeks ago um so let's pick up on the next section uh so i'll read uh about a page and then we can stop from uh for discussion okay subsection two the symbol object the pure case of the image or symbol as mental realities can only be exhaustively studied in relation to the analysis of dreams and daydreams which requires a specialized study that we must leave aside in this course for the sake of time However, from the perspective of a future study of invention and creation, we must consider the role played by the objects used as supports or instruments of symbolic formalization. The appearance of, no of invention within human activity is not an absolute and sudden novelty. It develops progressively, through the aid of objects which may at first be simple adjuncts, but which take on heightened prominences and autonomy by concretizing, condensing, and organizing a plurality of simultaneous and successive functions into a system of compatibility. We may call these objects intermediary or analog objects. The first and easiest to use of all intermediary objects is the body in expressive imitation. When used in an intensive way, the symbolic function of imitation corresponds to the reenactment of a memory. It calls forth the mimed object and brings it to life by evocation, as though the mimed object took possession of the mime. During funerals in ancient Rome, the procession was headed by mimes, evoking the memory of the deceased by reproducing his way of walking, his tics everything that constituted the motor caricature and the individual traits belonging to that person. This mime activity had the same meaning as portraits, statues, and the imagines of ancestors. Still today, the evocation of the dead comes with a certain induction of their habits, the choices they made, or the words they uttered in various circumstances. Memory provides norms through images, and it induces mimetic imitation through the body as intermediary object. Our culture restricts mimetic activity that is considered vulgar. But within the function of remembering and evocation, we can see the body proper, le corps propre, serving as intermediary object. For instance, when former students who had the same professor recall not only the professor's teaching, but the whole atmosphere of the time when that cohort atten attended his courses. All who symbolize by imitation in this way belong to a group linked by a kind of ritual. The tonal voice, the accent, the usual gestures, the turn of phrase, the most common concept used by the professor, whose memory is at once consecrated and desecrated by imitation. All of these components intervene in the celebration of the past. It is more a multiform caricature than a uniform photograph. It is the entire spectre or spectrum spectre of memory that is reincarnated from the best to the worst, the remembrance of good and bad grades, triumphs and humiliations. The professor brought back to life is both good and bad because he is impersonated. We might also notice how closely meanings are linked to concrete conditions of activity, how closely they adhere to symbols. A certain manner of using dialectical schemas may remain indissociable from the image of the professor who taught them, so much so that when we use these schemas, we may have the impression not of thinking on our own, but of speaking in the manner of that professor. The activity of expression, and verbal activity in particular, 
lend their concrete substrate to these abstract aspects of an integral invocation through the body proper as the most available intermediary object. Okay, uh, let's pause here. Um, right, so there's this, um, we're, we're passing out, so the, the title of the subsection is the symbol object. So we're now talking about symbols, not just as um, psychological realities or um, symbols in the mind, but objects uh, outside the mind that serve as symbols. And the, the most uh, sort of immediate of these objects is the body itself. Uh, so we can use our body to symbolize something. Um, and, uh, and here he talks about imitation as like the, the most um, uh, immediate form of this symbolization. Uh, so like the, the thing with the, the teacher is something we can sort of, you can picture a sort of scene like uh, maybe the funeral of the teacher and uh, the former students are there and, and they're sort of like um, saying, you know, remember how he used to do this or he used to, you know, make this kind of gesture or whatever. And then they're sort of like imitating what the teacher used to do. Um, and there's a kind of, um, uh, he, as he describes it here, it's a kind of profanation and consecration at the same time. You're sort of, um, uh, I mean, it's not an entirely respectful um, um action, I guess, to imitate the teacher in this way. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a kind of, um, um, I don't know exactly how to call it, but a kind of love for the teacher, I guess, that you're um, evoking by you know, um, this kind of um, action of imitation. Uh, there's a kind of, um, yeah, a kind of, um, you know, recalling the atmosphere of that time and uh, everything that went along with the, the course and not just the, the sort of intellectual content of the course that you were um uh taking with this teacher um so yeah this function of uh imitation i think he's right to say that in our in sort of western cultures imitation is generally um not taken to be uh sort of a serious um function like it it's used in sort of comedic like we you know impressions of people or caricatures are like used for comedy routines but um um it's not taken to um to be like a serious uh, function, a serious symbolic function, but it, it still has a, a certain role in, uh, you know, evoking uh, the past and, uh, you know, memory of someone who has died or of a, a time period um, that is gone or something like that. Uh, this point about the <clears throat> imitation of the deceased made me think of that great section in Individuation Volume 1 about the... Um, afterlife of the individual in the like continuation of these rituals of remembrance of basically their their affective relation to the world which um seems to fit pretty well with the idea of uh students um recapturing the mood in a professor's class at the professor's funeral yeah i think that's right um yeah so in that section in individuation he talks about like um if we think of, you know, if the individual is not something that is sort of confined to the body of the person, uh, like um, individuation is a, a sort of relationship between the the subject and the environment. It, you know, it's a, there's a, a milieu of the individual, like the world um, and the individual are sort of coming to being together. Um, then the death of that individual um doesn't sort of erase that that structuring of the world um and uh and like the sort of most basic form of that structuring is um all the social relationships of that person um so uh you know each of us 
um, is related to other people, family, friends, uh, colleagues, etc. Um, and each of these people it sort of forms part of the environment in which we individuate. And um, so after our death, uh, there's like a, a sort of um, structure of the world that made up that individuation of me um, that, uh, that, that remains after my death. Uh, and uh, other people can sort of maintain that structure of the world um, through various forms of ritual um, that, you know, it, it varies by society and, you know, time and place and everything. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this sort of, and, and Simon Do even describes this as a ritual here in, uh, in this passage in uh, Imagination and Invention, this sort of imitation of the professor um, uh, as a way of sort of keeping the memory of the professor alive and, and not just a memory as like a, a psychological um, state, but, uh, you know, a, a certain aspect of the world that, you know, went into making up the individuation of that person, the professor. Um, so you're... Uh, this ritual is sort of keeping the the structure of the world that made up the individuation of that professor alive uh, for a certain time. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think like in Western societies, we don't tend to have uh, like the role of ritual is more limited than in other societies, I think, um, in this respect. Like um, we have sort of a funeral um, a few days or weeks after the person dies. Uh, and then we're we're supposed to sort of move on from from that event and sort of get back to normal. Um, but other societies have like practices where you visit the grave every week or something like that. Um, uh, um, so yeah, there are other societies where the rituals surrounding a dead person are more um, uh, are a bigger part of their life and uh, are they last longer than it does in our society. Um, so yeah, there's like um, a lot of variation between societies in terms of how how exactly you are supposed to um, maintain the memory of someone who's died. Yeah, and so yeah, so Angus posted in the chat here that about about how in uh, in China and Japan, um, many people have these altars to ancestors in their houses. Um, uh, yeah, and, and so like sometimes it's described as like alt um, ancestor worship, which probably is not exactly the right term, um, but uh, yeah, some sort of um, ritual evocation or ritual um uh perpetuation of the memory of someone who has died um which uh you know is, is not really practiced in our culture at least not in the same way um it's uh yeah we, we have a sort of uh finite um ritual in in the case of uh, a funeral but then um yeah it's uh it's a kind of um you know the funeral supports is supposed to sort of close off the person's life and then open a new stage in the the you know surviving people's lives uh and uh yeah it it, it doesn't um there isn't a, a sort of continuing practice of um maintaining the memory of the dead uh it wasn't clear to me in this initial paragraph i mean he talks about how objects can be the support of invention but the relation to i can't remember if he makes this explicit later on but the the relation to the um the symbol as he's been discussing it uh is the idea that like a gesture or a more complicated object uh resolves this or plays a role in the resolution of this disparity between the two semi-incompatible impressions like the good and bad mother and the Lacan example 
Um, I think I think the way we can think about this is a kind of um, continuum of externalization of the image. Um, so, like the like uh, what we looked at a few weeks ago with the um, you know the sort of after images that you perceive um, after looking at a bright light. Um, you look at your phone at night uh, when you're lying in bed, and then you turn off your phone and you see like a, a sort of bright um, rectangle floating in front of your eyes. Um, uh, that is obviously a very sort of internal image. Like as you're seeing it, you know that there's no actual bright um, rectangle floating around above your head in uh, in your room. You you clearly recognize that as something that is like a, a product of your perceptual system. Uh, and then there's like um, uh, other types of images like this uh, good and bad mother that again are sort of psychological, but they're images of something outside of you, like you you sort of like the mother um as a person is something that exists outside of me um and then i'm sort of perceiving different aspects of her uh at different times uh um but then uh and we'll see like later in this section um you have like souvenirs like these are like like um objects that you know exist outside of me and the same way that uh you know a stone or a uh, a tree branch or whatever exists like you you have your your photo you know your postcard or whatever from your vacation um it's a physical object that exists out there in the world but at the same time it has this affective power um it it's uh it's part of your um emotional life uh, just as much as it is part of the physical universe in which you find yourself uh and then um we'll we'll get to the inventions in the next part of this book but um what this externalization allows for is like the manipulation of these objects. Uh, um, you can sort of take them apart and put them back together in different ways. You can, um, uh, you know, make connections between different um, images uh, as external objects. You can sort of hook them up to each other in different ways. Um, so this externalization allows you to like put them into new context and use them in different ways that they weren't um, capable of uh, being used in before. Um, so, yeah, I think this process of the image passing from this like purely internal state to uh, an external object that you can manipulate is sort of how we get from the uh, uh, psychological image or, or these like um, optical illusions and things like that to, uh, to invention. It's this sort of continuously more and more external, more manipulable um, uh, form of image. Uh, so that's sort of like the big picture of... Uh, the progression from like these different forms of images into the actual invention outside of my mind and body. Thank you. That makes sense. I can read the next section if we're ready to move on. Yeah, let's do it. Um, outside of the body proper, the most easily attainable intermediary objects are those that can be detached, manipulated, carried, or preserved, such as fragments of clothing or stone, a curl of hair, or some water from a river like that. Chateaubriand brought back from the Jordan River. Such symbolic objects are called, quote, souvenir, souvenir, unquote, and the belief in their operative force is so strong that they can produce powerful collective movements. When Lindbergh landed at the Bourget airport after having crossed the Atlantic, the crowd ran to, ran to the hero to lift him triumphantly, but also to the spirit of Saint-Louis to tear off pieces and keep them as souvenirs. To pick up a symbol memory, souvenir symbol, is to retain something of the reality from which it is lifted. 
since this reality is deprived of one of its parts, small as it might be, and as a result, an absorption in the subject occurs through the intermediary of the bond of property. The souvenir is an analogon of the reality from which it was drawn and constitutes a mode of access to this reality through conscious knowledge, but also through an operation of influence, drawing its meaning from magical operations. According to the categories of the souvenir becomes symbol image, the belongings of a person are to some extent in a symbolic relation with him. An ancient author mocks the admirer of a wise man who, after the latter's death, bought his clay lamp, convinced that studying under its light, he could imbue himself of the philosopher's knowledge. Uh, this is probably this probably this is probably unusual with respect to philosophical thought, since its disciples are generally less materially idolizing. Yet the quest for belonging is common in the form of a participation through object possession and in less purely reflective behaviors. Some businesses in France today sell dresses or coats that belong to actresses, even though our culture has a generally unfavorable opinion of the use of objects bought secondhand. But the yearning to participate in the life of a famous and admired person through the use of a material symbolon is stronger than the reluctance to wear clothing that isn't new. For the same reason, houses where a celebrity is lived find more buyers and at a higher price. Each culture defines the class of objects, allowing participation in the mode of a transfer of belongings. Clothing and houses occupy a prominent place as intermediary objects, probably because they are like envelopes of the body proper. Um, next come usual objects such as pieces of furniture, then collectibles. In an adjacent category, we find the objects directly produced by a person, handwritten letters, drawings, or craft work. Uh, hmm. Next paragraph is very long. Yeah, we can stop here. Uh, yeah, thanks. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is like the, the next um, sort of stage of this externalization process is, uh, so we had the, the body itself used as a symbol of you know, a dead person or of something outside of me. Uh, but then there, the next step is like, clothing or the house as a symbol of a person. Um, so uh, he talks about these, um, uh, and this I think probably exists even more today than it did at that time, but this sort of um, affective relationship to objects that a famous person possessed, um, you know, the this person's jacket, like you, you go and buy your favorite musician's uh, jacket or uh, dress or whatever, um, uh, uh, or, you know, famous actor's house or whatever these things. And so that clothing and the, and the house serve as a kind of, um, uh, you know, as he puts it here, a kind of envelope of the body. Like clothing, of course, is sort of immediately um, uh, in contact with the body. And so there's this idea of this kind of magical um, transfer of um, the sort of power of the person into the clothing. Um, and the house is a, a sort of more uh, like a, a more mediated or a less immediate envelope of the body it's something that you know the person has the um this kind of long-standing relationship with the house at least for a few months at, um that, where they spend a lot of their time there um and and so the house sort of absorbs some of the the magical power of this person um and uh yeah so again we have this um this sort of role of an object as uh, a key point in structuring the um, affective life of other people. Um, so like this, you know, people sometimes spend thousands of dollars um, buying 
these souvenir objects, you know, things that a, a celebrity once owned or touched or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, this is like many, many hours worth of work that you're dedicating towards, um, uh, you know, buying this object. Uh, um, so it's like, it's uh, not a trivial uh, sort of uh, decision to, to buy one of these objects. Um, so yeah, it's a, a pretty significant, it plays a significant role in the lives of some people who are, you know, oriented towards this kind of, uh, um, yeah, these, uh, you know, souvenir objects. Um, so, and obviously this is not like um, a sort of logical decision. It's not like, you know, if I, it, there's not a sort of instrumental rationality to this decision to buy this um, souvenir object. It's not that the person is thinking, you know, if I buy this famous singer's jacket, that will make me a good singer and make me famous and rich and so on. Like they probably are not, uh, they don't have this sort of um, explicitly um, uh, understood thought uh, along these lines that this purchase will sort of serve a particular goal. It's uh, it's uh, some sort of affective relationship. It's like an immediate feeling of like, I need to have this object. I need to sort of possess this piece of this famous person's reality. Um, so it's it's much um, it's much stronger than just like a, a sort of uh, instrumental desire, instrumental um, decision to buy something because it's going to be useful for me. Yeah, this was at first a little confusing for me because he tends to use the that word symbolon to refer to like an effective relationship. Like he talks about the individual and the milieu being symbols of each other. But this seems more like the jacket of the rock star seems more like the brick and like an ongoing process of individuation because it's no longer the rock star's jacket and it's not even really relevant to what makes the rock star what they are. But I guess the idea is that it, it, it's the kind of mediating term in this affective relationship between the, the fan and the admired person. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, so you're right that Simondon generally uses the term symbol to describe this. Like he, he always refers to this uh, ancient Greek practice of you know breaking a, a stone or some sort of token in half and then using the two pieces to recognize the other party. Um, so each side of a relationship keeps half of the token, and then to uh, to sort of uh, recognize the other party, you see if the two pieces fit together. Um, and, and this is where the term symbol comes from. And Simondon always. Uh, refers back to this um, actual practice. Um, and so, yeah, the, the individual and the milieu are symbols of each other in the sense that they sort of fit together. Like the, the milieu is the milieu of this individual and the individual uh, sort of belongs to this particular milieu. Uh, and so I think here, the symbolic relationship is the relationship between like the rock star and the jacket. Um, so the jacket is sort of this envelope of the, of the person. Um, uh, and it, it sort of stands in for the whole world of the rock star um, for like, for the fan. Uh, the fan, like by getting this jacket or even like a I don't know a towel that the musician used to you know wipe their forehead during a concert or whatever. Um, like this piece of the musician's world um, sort of stands in for the whole world of the musician. Um, and so by um, possessing this piece of the musician's world you're like um able to possess uh part of the musician's like uh magical power or virtue or something like that uh um 
so again, it's it's um, a much less intellectual relationship than um, it is an affective one. Uh, so obviously, the fan is, doesn't think in a sort of explicit way that if I, you know, get a hold of this jacket, that will like make this musician my friend or something like that, or it'll give me like some capacity to make a a real connection with this person. But it's it's this affective um, need to sort of incorporate the magical power of the musician into my own being um so by by owning this item i uh i sort of absorb the musician's power into myself in this sort of magical way um so yeah i think i think the the symbolic relationship is the relation between the item of clothing and or the house and uh and the famous person or the the person that i want to have this um magical connection to and here I would also um, point back to um, uh, part three of On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects, where he he gives an explicit theory of the magical mode of existence, um, which he's, I think, sort of alluding to here, um, especially we'll see in the next paragraph where he talks about um, these objects, these souvenir objects as remarkable points. Uh, and this is a term that he uses in On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects. Um, he he describes the, the universe of the magical mode of existence as structured into these remarkable points. So you can think of like, like some of the examples he gives are like the peak of a mountain or the center of a forest, um, or uh, like there are remarkable points in time as well, like the new year or the full moon or whatever. Um, so these are like points in space and time that have like concentrate the power of a whole region or of a whole um, portion of the year. Uh, they, they sort of uh, have this concentrated power that um, other, you know, sort of ordinary days or ordinary places don't have. Um, uh, and so the the universe of the magical mode of existence is this sort of network of remarkable points that um, that are connected to each other in this way. Um, and so these uh, objects, the, you know, souvenirs or um, mementos or whatever are um, these sort of remarkable points that concentrate all the power of the musician or the famous person, um, all of that is sort of concentrated into this, uh, I don't know, this uh, autograph on a, a piece of paper that they might have signed or, or whatever. Um, uh, and this thing that they once possessed or once touched is uh, sort of concentrates all of the magical power of that person. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it's it's magical, not just in the sense that it's like this sort of uh, a logical form of reasoning, but in the sort of specific sense in which Simon Don describes the magical mode of existence in that uh, in that other book as this network of remarkable points. Okay, uh, I think we can go on to the next bit if uh, I can get someone to read from such objects or remarkable points. Sure. Yeah, Varun, you can uh, go ahead. Hello? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Such objects are remarkable points, extreme terms of reality. They express the hotspots of situations and persons, through which they are articulated, in an effective and remarkable way, with the natural and social mode according to a savage mode of perception and action. The idea that hair and fingernails retain vital force even detached from the body is roughly comparable to the belief that a noose used to hang someone carries good luck. Hair and fingernails have the virtue of extremities. They express the insertion of the body in the outside world, materializing and expressing its limits, its active borders. Anything that is mobile and visible is already virtually detachable from the individual in order to keep on expressing his force and possibilities of action. 
that which is sufficiently pliable and mobile in the body to serve expression such as hair and the extremities of limbs tends to be selected as an intermediary object preserving absolute properties. The symbolic function is continuous with the skin appendages of various species. Since these appendages manifest a relational category of the organism, existing for and towards the outside as organs of display, manifestation, hence there exists a category of intermediary reality between the organism as a self-sufficient and necessary reality with basic organs and the objects of the external world subject to manipulation and organization and which form into instruments or a territory namely the category of organs and movements of display which are linked to the outside and more laden with expression than those organs necessary for life as i don't it's kind of long as we're fine to stop here or um, yeah, let's continue. continue. Um, There's a one long paragraph, so let's try to go yeah. to the end of the whole thing. All right, sure. Yeah. It is precisely these organs of display that are first recruited as symbols since they are detachable without endangering life, but also because their relative exteriority allows them to be artificially overloaded with veneer, color, adornment, and jewels, to be considered as an intensification of specialization of their perceptual function. Long fingernails, various hairdos, organs of display connected in a continuous way to clothing, and adornment wigs. They thereby link back to the world in a very different way than essential organs for functions such as breathing and feeding. These are effectors that do not bear on objects and do not operate on the world, but display and advertise a mode of being, a state, or an attitude that are generally more durable than a simple action, and often linked in a deep way to a function or a rank. To the same extent, the mode of being of display organs may, among species whose appendages cannot be easily modified, call for an instrumental prosthetic component that affixes and stills as a materialized and thus detachable symbol of the glory the display mediator. A scepter is a materialized function of the hand of glory with its stretched index finger. The weapons of a warrior or the scepter of an emperor are very directly symbolic appearances since they extend the organs of display in a prosthetic direction. And also because in the prosthetic relation, the suppression of the instrument object robs the body of one of its powers. Of course, According to conceptual logic, even if the loss of a prosthetic object is akin to a mutilation for the one who, know, who knew how to use it, it does not follow that its force or power could be transferred to any other person taking hold of that object without prior learning. Yet the implicit logic of images enables precisely this belief in the transfer of power through through the prosthetic object, since the display of power transpires in attitudes and appendages and not strictly speaking in motor organs as such. It is similarly display that forms the trigger for the memory that restores the object and the situation. Display, since it makes the displaying subject overflow towards the object, may be perceived as independent of that subject. This intermediary status between that of an organism and of an object from the milieu enables the formation of the symbol on the basis of the display perceived through the object. Display indeed is univocal only when it is directed and borne by an organism such as the scepter at an arm's length. It becomes a tensed and metastable system when this prosthetic object detached from any organism is both the object which is carried by the other address the object addresses the subject, and which the subject ta tasks with transmitting the power of his own organism to the world. This prosthetic object is then equally centripetal and centrifugal. The perceived scepter is pointed in a single direction, but the scepter becomes a symbol when it is directed all at once 
directed against the subject, and directed by the subject towards the world, both senses, both orientations cross each other and deploy between them the continuous spectrum of imaginary instances of experience, replacing the linear and discontinuous series of memory. The memory image, strongly asymmetrical, thus progressively becomes symmetrical because the bearer of the scepter vanishes while the subject takes a hold of it. Similarly, a symbolic weapon is all at once threat against the subject and an object, he can take hold of it to threaten others. The symbol is an aperturance that has simultaneously several owners and several orientations towards the object. By becoming symmetrical in this way, the memory image tends towards the status of an object, yet in a completely different way than objects from the milieu which are not made of equilibrium between two opposite orientations provisionally neutralized. A symbol is but a pseudo-object loaded with all the potential energy of a metastable system ready to spark a change of structure. We may take, as another example, that of the cross, it's a souvenir so long as it perpetuates the death of Christ, but it becomes a symbol within Christendom when it becomes also the sign of the labyrinth, or that of the crusaders since its meaning is reversed according to the adage, you shall conquer for the sign. This shift to the function of a symbol is in fact the index of a change in the scope of Christianity in relation to temporal reality. All right, thanks. That's one of Timondon's uh, famous giant paragraphs. Um, <laughs> yeah, he loves these like multi-page long paragraphs and then sentences with like six semicolons in them. Um, it's great. Um, right, so again, we have... Um, um, so this is sort of continuing with the last bit about... Um, uh, the use of these um, um, these sort of mementos or souvenirs of a person, um, but this is like these symbols, um, uh, like the scepter, um, sort of have a even more external reality. So the the scepter is not tied. So the scepter is um, uh, a sort of symbol of the power of the emperor, but it's not tied to the emperor as a person in the same way that the um, rock star's jacket is. Um, so there's this uh, sort of detachability of the scepter um, in a way that uh, the the jacket doesn't have. So um, even so, even in cases where like a, a weapon, for example, um, uh, this weapon uh, has this sort of symbolic function, but it also has a, a more practical function in like actually being used in fighting. Um, um, and of course, from a, a sort of logical point of view the possession of the weapon is not the same thing as the capacity to actually use it to fight. Um, like, you, you need to practice and develop skills to be able to use a sword, for example. Um, um, but there's this sort of, um, in, in this sort of imagistic thinking, there's a kind of transfer of the, the warrior's power um, into the sword that they use. So, like, there's this sort of um, inference that if I can take hold of the sword... Uh, if I can possess the this sword, then I will have um, this, uh, um, you know, capacity to fight uh, that this warrior has. Um, so um, again, these are sort of detachable pieces of the world of the person um, that um, that allow for this kind of inference that, um, in a sense, neutralizes the object. Uh, uh, this symbolic. Um, Entity becomes neutral in the sense that it, it's um, it can be directed towards me, the subject, or it can be directed uh, can be used by me, the subject, uh, um, as like a um, 
uh, a way of um, imposing my will on the world. Um, so like the weapon, the, the sword or whatever, it can be something that, that threatens me. Um, it can be um, um, you know, used against me. But at the same time, if I can take hold of it, then I have the power to threaten others and to make them do what I want. Um, so the, the, it's, it's metastable in the sense that it, these two contrary tendencies are sort of um, united in this entity, this uh, symbolic um, being uh, of the sword or the scepter or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so he, he describes this as being a, a sort of formation of an object, but in a completely different way than like um, uh, a perceptual object. So like if I'm just, I don't know, walking in the woods, and I notice a, a stone of some, you know, the, the color of the stone is like slightly different than the rest of the, um, the stones. And so it sort of stands out. Um, this is a sort of perceptual object that it has like a, a sort of neutrality in the sense that I don't, you know, have the, um, a strong affective um, relationship to this stone. It's, it's just an object that I perceive. It doesn't, it's not like useful or harmful. It has no sort of affective tone to it. Um, and so this is like, object perception in the proper sense of the term, like perceiving something as an object has this sort of neutrality to it. Um, but then these symbols, like the scepter, are neutral in a completely different sense. So it's not because they have no affective tone, it's that they have um, these sort of contrary affective tendencies uh, sort of crossing it within them. And so it's like, um, uh, it's neutral because there are two opposing forces that balance each other in the object. Uh, so it's a, a completely different form of neutrality than um, the, the stone that is neutral just because it has no particular relevance to my affective life. Um, so yeah, so these objects, um, or the pseudo-objects as he calls them here, are um, um, symmetrical in the sense that um, they can be used either against me or by me, um, but they're symmetrical in a completely different way than the, uh, the object um, in the proper sense of the term, the, the perceptual object that has no affective relevance for me it's uh, this discussion of the symmetry of of these objects reminds me of the uh, i think um maybe it was a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago when he was contrasting i think it was the symbol image but i may be misremembering uh with the like composite photographs um and he pointed out that if you have an image of someone which includes both very good deeds and very bad deeds, these aren't sort of neutralized and being overlapped so that they become the same as kind of a, a person without any remarkably either good or bad deeds. Um, and I I'm wonder if the uh, neutrality of the symbolic object here has the same kind of potency as um, that kind of overlap of personalities, which, uh, at least in that section, did not seem to um, neutralize the difference between the extremes. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah, so that passage, um, yeah, he, he gives an argument for why um, um, why we can't take it that the sort of sum summative or averaging function of uh, composite images is sort of the... Um, universal logic of the formation of concepts. Um, so uh, if, if we took it that um, sort of an addition of images, of singular images, is what brings about a, a general concept, then um, our concept of a person who had done um, 
you know, some terrible things and some great things, you know, those two things should sort of cancel out and um, be equivalent to an image of a person who has done nothing remarkable one way or the other. Um, uh, and of course, that is not the case. We we take it, um, our, our sort of understanding of a person who has done, you know, terrible and great things um, is quite different than of a person who has just been sort of neutral throughout their life. Uh, and so, um, there's a sort of non-additive or non-averaging um, way of combining these good and bad deeds in our image of a person. Uh, and then likewise, in these formation of symbols, uh, in the sort of strict sense of the term here, um, the scepter or the, the sword or whatever, um, these, uh, these objects are, are um, neutral, not by... Um, averaging or um, canceling out of, of the tendencies. They have this tension built into them. So even though there's an equilibrium of um, the sort of threatening aspect of the sword and the um, uh, you know aspect of the sword as an object that I could use to you know uh, get what I want out of other people, um, these two aspects of the sword don't cancel each other out and just leave the sword as like a neutral thing I can just observe passively. Um, the, the, the two aspects are um, in tension with each other. And so the sword has a, a very high um, affective charge to it, it, it. And this tension is sort of built into my image of the sword. Um, and we see like swords used in, you know, all sorts of symbolic functions, that, you know, on flags or um, coat of arms and things like that. Uh, um, that, uh, or, um, you know, even like uh, names, um, things like that. Like people give names to swords or did at one point when swords were Part of everyday life um so uh yeah these entities are are neutral in a different way they they contain a tension as opposed to a cancellation of the two opposing tendencies uh in the same way that the concepts um of like a, a person um uh are are you know contain the tension of the two opposing um aspects of that person's behavior i can read the next couple of paragraphs uh, yeah, I'm just taking a look. Uh, yeah, so okay. you can read up to um, yeah one on 136, uh, like the bottom full paragraph. Their their capacity to indicate potentials. If you could read up to there. Uh, yeah, no problem. The evolution of the memory image towards the state of symbol entails a certain process of abstraction, where quote unquote abstraction means quote an abstraction an extraction from unquote. But it is an extraction of the elements of display, manifestation, from complete situations. These extreme terms within situations, as key points conveying forces, become concretized while the memory of the conveying organisms and the particular circumstances recedes and fades away. The memory image becomes a symbol when the orientation or particular direction of the display loses its original univocity through the possible duality of orientations. The memory of a weapon wielded by the subject, like that of a threatening weapon wielded by others, only produces images. But these images form a symbol when the weapon is understood as a threat to the subject and at the same time grasped as something to be wielded by the subject to threaten others. These two directions of a weapon register the extreme terms of attack and defense. The symbol weapon is neither wielded by the subject nor against him. It is the tension between these two images, like a weapon seen in profile, potentially harboring the gesture that will turn it against others or against the subject. 
we may say in heraldic language that the symbol is always quote-unquote passant and not quote-unquote issuant when the image while the image is issuant and not uh, passant or passant the formalization of a memory that produces a symbol is an operation transforming the quote-unquote issuant objects located in relation to the subject and the situation into quote-unquote passant objects waiting to be redirected in accordance with the project from which they draw their orientation. In a concrete way, we could say that the mental world of symbols is that of objects quote seen in profile unquote while they are nonetheless key points within situations, objects, or organs of display, manifestational, loaded with meaning and force. The relative detachment of these significant objects mobilizes them, renders them available, makes them the toothing stones of inventive imagination. Symbols are, quote, absolute objects, unquote, detached from the empirical situations of their emergence yet having preserved their power, their capacity for, of expression, their capacity to indicate potentials. So this is very similar to the discussion of the um, memory image, I think it was, earlier. Um, and the idea uh, that you discussed in the recap of the last meeting of the uh, Lacanian notion of the mother as both as comprising these extremes of uh, kind of safe haven and also like threat of annihilation. And it's the um, coincidence, I guess, of this contradiction that gives the image its, its valence in the same way that uh, the weapon, which is remembered both as a weapon that I can use and a weapon that my enemy can use uh, has this, power because of its reversibility. I looked it up and uh, passant, I, I think, is um, when like an animal on a, on a heraldic uh, ensemble or whatever you call them um, is turned to the side, so like away from the viewer, whereas an issuant object or creature is like coming towards or facing the viewer. So I guess the idea is that the passant image is because it's turned to the side, it can be reoriented either way, towards or away from the viewer. Yeah, I'm just taking a look now at uh, some heraldry stuff, <clears throat> you know, concepts. I, I don't really know these things. Actually, I don't know these things at all. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page um, uh, where it's uh, trying to find issuant. It's not listed on here, but um, yeah, the, I mean, the specifics of the heraldic um, terminology, I think, is not that um important but uh, the idea i think is fairly clear that the the um the object the the scepter or the sword can be uh either turned towards me as a, a threatening object or they can be sort of um presented um as an object that i can grasp as that i can manipulate and, and use for my purposes um um so yeah the these two um um sort of contrary ways of um presenting this entity, the sword, uh, for example, uh, are two different forms. Uh, so the image here, so here we have the image in the strict sense of the term, so as opposed to a symbol, and a symbol, again, in a strict sense, so as opposed to an image. Um, so the whole the whole book, of course, or the whole course is about um, the image in a broader sense, which includes symbols. Uh, and then here, he's using the word image and symbol in a more restricted sense. Um, 
so the image is um um yeah the image is uh the the um issuant uh form of the of the the object the object is seen as like uh threatening me or as directed towards me um and then the passant form is the um the object as um presented to me as something that i can use um yeah so it's because the um because these objects are presented to us in a way that we can sort of uh, manipulate them and use them for our own purposes, that they're sort of detached from their situation in which they arise. So um, the scepter is something that uh, indicates the emperor's power, but it's it's sort of independent of the emperor. Another person, like you can, um, I don't know, carry out a coup and take over uh, and use the, the scepter yourself uh, um, to sort of indicate your power. Um, so yeah, the, this is the, the role of the symbol as something that's, uh, that sort of concentrates the power of a particular situation. Um, but it, um, is detachable from the situation in which it arises as opposed to the image, which is always, um, the image in the, the sort of strict sense of the term, the image is, um, uh, sort of part of a situation. Okay. Uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read. I'm going to read up to the end of the section because it's a kind of long paragraph here. Okay. The subject for whom the majority of images are converted into symbols partially loses his memories insofar they are historical, dated, particular, with oriented objects having a definite and univocal meaning with respect to the subject himself. Within the symbol, succession becomes simultaneity. The individual acquires a universal scope. What belongs to others begins to belong virtually to the subject at the same time that he loses his own appurtenances. Symbols are not situated in relation to the ego, which means they cannot adapt the subject as acting organism to his media or territory. They translate the force of things just as much, uh, just as, much as the virtualities of action for the subject. They are powers without support, without subject, and without external media in which to be inserted. The world of symbol... Uh, yeah, the world of symbols is a kind of pandemonium floating in between the situation of objects and that of subjects, interposed between the living and the milieu. In mental conditions, symbols may be taken for objective reality, or they might inhabit the subject who feels possessed and loses his freedom and his power of initiating action. Art practices a kind of exorcism, which, rather than letting the universe of symbols float between the world of objects and the subject, seals it by representing it, ritualizing it, and inserting it within the objective world and social regularity. Magic draws from the imaginary as means of evocation or influence in materializing symbols which it re-individualizes, christens with a proper name, or fashions after the semblance of a living being, to use it as a mode of access in the analogical operation of invocation or hexing. An effigy is an analogon of the person to be hexed, yet it is infused with the imaginary and constructed with the greatest possible number of symbol objects borrowed from the actual individual. All such uses of the symbolic imaginary are naive to some extent, for they reprise a formalized content, that of the symbol, by trying to make it real again, but without continuing the cycle of the image that was formalized into a symbol by losing, losing its links as a dated and personal memory. But the cycle of the image cannot be reversed. A formalization has been completed. It is not from inside or without a constructive, productive, creative, or modifying operation on its structures that the insertion within the universe can be rediscovered. The symbol is a mixture of subject and object that has, which has an instrumental value for invention. In magic, dream, or fantasy, it can only become degraded and yield the illusion of a false concreteness, an artificial world of appearances. The platonic critique of the arts as generators of illusion applies essentially to arts seeking to rediscover an existence from symbols, inverting a becoming whose, com whose completion can only be found in invention. 
and in the recommencement of a new cycle of relations with reality, and not in an inversion of the cycle already accomplished. A memory in its most condensed form, that of the symbol, is but a moment in the becoming of the image, which has as much functional meaning with respect to the action to be undertaken after invention as with respect to the action already accomplished. Once an action is accomplished and an experience is had by becoming formalized into a symbol, memory proposes instruments for a new action. The symbol absorbs the manifestation, but the manifestation does not deplete itself. It does not deplete itself in the imaginary either, since it is only a stage at the completion of which a new cycle of action becomes possible through the invented object. It would certainly be interesting to study in themselves the direct uses of the imaginary as modes of expression, of communication, or of influence in the arts, in rhetoric, and magic. However, since these are uses that interrupt the cycle of the image and prevent it from reaching its state of completion, the study of such modalities is of more interest for the history of groups and cultures than for the elucidation of the complete becoming of the image considered as a question of quote-unquote general psychology. But it is worth noting that the cycle of the image is a genesis that is marked in each of its stages by a sedimentation, a reduction in the number of elements preserved and ultimately proposed as material for invention. Not all motor tendencies receive a confirmation of a perceptual experience. Only those that the imprinting of an attempt situation stabilizes subsist. And among memory images thus gathered, only a few are, are formalized into symbols in order to organize the world of the imaginary serving as basis for invention. This is what explains the fact that the world of the imaginary appears richer than that of invention. Images are more numerous than symbols when they are merely memory images. Right, so here he's uh, presenting some of the limitation, <coughs> limitations of um, the, uh, the world of symbols. Um, and... And so here, the symbol um, should be understood as a part of the cycle of the image that is the whole um, topic of the whole course, right? Um, this cycle that goes from um, motor tendencies all the way to an invention. Uh, and he sees um, this sort of focus on symbols or the attempt to reconstruct a world out of symbols as a kind of uh, reversal of the course of the cycle of invention. So instead of passing from the symbol to a new object uh, through invention, you instead sort of uh, turn, try to turn back the tide and reconstitute a world out of the symbol. Um, and so th because the symbol is detached from the worlds uh, in the way that um, we've been talking about the last little bit, um, uh, it, this effort to sort of reconstitute a world out of a symbol or out of many symbols is, is sort of doomed to failure. Um, you, you can only ever... Um, sort of assemble symbols to each other and, you know, make um, these sort of imaginary links between symbols, but you can never recapture the world out of which a symbol arises. Uh, and so the only way to sort of um, have a real relationship to the world is to um, proceed from the symbol to invention to produce something new um, that, um, that allows for a real relationship with the world again and sort of restarts the whole cycle at a higher level. Um, and so I think like when he talks about art here, I think um, he, I don't think he's saying that uh, this is true of all art. I think he, he's saying that um, an art that um, sort of remains at the level of symbols and only ever deals with symbols would be um, uh, incapable of sort of um, recreating that relationship to the world's uh, but art that has this power of invention, I think he's he's leaving it open here, at least, that there there would be art that has the power of invention that actually does allow us to um, reconnect with the world. And maybe we can connect this also with his um, discussion of aestheticism in the conclusion of uh, individuation, um, where he, he sort of talks about how aestheticism is this kind of um, 
attitude towards the world that uh, um, sort of uh, disconnects us from our implication with the world. It, it sort of, um, um, yeah, it cuts us off from the world in that way, in the sense that we're sort of remaining in this world of um, the aesthetic or this world of symbols uh, that sort of connect with each other, but never allow us to re uh, regain our connection with the world. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's probably um, relevant here in, in this passage as well. Yeah, in, in addition to the point about aestheticism, well, I haven't read the conclusion to volume one in a long time, but I remember uh, in his discussion of ethical acts, it seems like, I think he draws a distinction between repetition and iteration there. And there's uh, the way that the that ethical acts sort of propagate from one act to another, I think he compares it to, you know, the model of transduction um, for which the paradigm is the, like a spectrum. And at least the way that I read that is that um, the ethical acts are not purely identical, but sort of analogous to one another. So that there is an element of transformation um, between one act and another. And so maybe that would correspond to this, uh, idea of invention needing to kind of rediscover the conditions and invent again rather than just um, creating this uh, symbol which is separated from those conditions and therefore doesn't really have any power. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think, like, if we think of symbols um, that have sort of a long-standing use, like the cross, like he talked about earlier, um, like this symbol, it, you, you see it you know, everywhere people wear it um, as a necklace or whatever. And um, for a lot of people, it doesn't really have any power anymore. Um, like some people obviously are, are very, um, uh, you know, sort of involved in religion and religion is an important part of their life, but other people just sort of wear it as a piece of jewelry. Um, so uh, for those people, this symbol is uh, completely detached from any um, sort of connection with the world. It's just a sort of piece of ornamentation. Um, um, so to just like to make the cross into a symbol that would have or to to sort of regain um the power that the cross might have had as a symbol in a, a previous world you have to um sort of reinvent it uh in in some way you have to like give your own meaning to this symbol this own your own sort of power to the symbol you can't just sort of um pick up the symbol that happens to exist in your society in your environment and just sort of use it um and and like expect to um, uh, retain the power that it had in say like the first century Christian community. Um, so yeah, it's uh, uh, he's he's not here, of course, like saying that symbols are bad or, or are not useful or something like that. But he uh, he's um, expressing this limitation that the symbol um, has to be sort of recreated to be to retain its power. It, it doesn't have a capacity to um, uh, transmit power. Um, sort of directly. Okay, uh, so if there's no other um, comments or questions, um, yeah, we can pass to invention next time. And so this, um, yeah, this part of the book is, um, uh, I think, connected with um, the other book on the mode of existence of technical objects in a more uh, sort of direct way than the rest of the book. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, read those two together, I think. Right. Uh, so thanks everyone for coming out. Thanks for your contributions and um, hope to see you next week.